We talk Ukraine, the NRA, and the gun business on our first Q&A episode of the Weekly Reload Podcast. I made the devil run. I gave him poison just for fun. All right. Welcome, ladies and gentlemen, to another episode of the Weekly Reload Podcast. I'm your host, Stephen Gutowski. I'm also the founder of TheReload.com, where you can head over and buy a membership today if you want to get exclusive access to dozens of pieces of reporting and analysis that you won't find anywhere else. Uh, You'll also get access to this podcast a day early and the opportunity to be on the show and the opportunity to ask questions for our Q&A episodes, which is exactly what, what this is, a special episode, right, Jake? That's right. Yeah. First uh, first of many, we hope. Uh, we're testing it out for the first time and we're kind of excited for this new segment. Uh, just a new perk for, for members to kind of be involved in the community. Yeah, we, we want to have a way to do uh, Q&As with our members. And so this seems like a, a pretty good avenue for that, uh, although we're open to other possibilities, too. If you're a member and you want to suggest some, feel free to email. Just respond to your Sunday newsletter, which is another exclusive thing that members get, uh, your analysis newsletter on Sundays, and uh, let us know what, what you'd like to see. But we're going to try this format out. We're going to have, we got a bunch of questions from our members that we had sent in this week, and uh, we're going to answer a few of those. Um, so J- Jake, why don't you start with the first one? Sure. Yeah. So we got a, a couple questions about the situation in Ukraine. Obviously, it's very topical at the moment. Um, so the first one comes from Andrew Fagel who asks, what was the state of gun laws in Ukraine prior to Russia's invasion? He talks about he's seen lots of clips and memes online about Ukrainians buying arms prior to the invasion. Um, But he wants to know, were these uh, semi-automatic rifles that we would recognize here in the States? Were they select fire? Um, I don't know if you want to take that first question. Yeah, I think the first one there on uh, what was the state of Ukraine's gun laws is, is a good question, right? We wrote over at the reload about uh, how they had changed their gun laws right before the invasion actually occurred uh, and and adopted this sort of uh, recognition of self-defense and defensive property as a right uh, in Ukraine, which is fairly unusual in Europe. Um, and that was a fairly remarkable thing to happen. And now you've obviously seen a lot of reports of um, armed civilians defending the country against the Russian invasion, which has now been bogged down there for uh, two weeks going going and, uh, you know, they still haven't captured most of their major strategic objectives like the capital of Kiev and the government and the army of Ukraine are still operating uh, despite lots of of horrendous slaughter by the invading Russians, including things like bombing uh, maternity wards. But anyway, the Ukrainian gun laws in the lead up to the invasion were you know, fairly similar to what you see commonly in Europe. Uh, they, they're very strict. I mean, I think that's the bottom line, right? right. Is that they, they were very strict laws. The, you know, Europeans have some, I don't know, uh, differences with America. Like there's, there's quirks in all their gun laws that Americans would look at and think are weird. You know, they, they define things based off of smoothbore versus rifled. Uh, we don't do stuff like that in the U.S. Um, they have different age ranges, you know, whether it's uh, 21 to own uh, certain guns and 25 to own other ones. But I think the bottom line is before the invasion, it was very difficult for the average Ukrainian to legally own firearms in uh, in the country of Ukraine. And uh, that that's the real significant difference. They had a lot of things like, um, you know, pistol purchase permits, and right. that include stuff like um, psych evaluations and uh, things that you even in the strictest states in the United States you you, you wouldn't see for basic um, gun ownership. And a lot of it was regulated directly by the uh, the Minister of the Interior, which is kind of like their Attorney General, right? Uh, the you know their top law enforcement position and it was it's kind of it was almost ad hoc in some ways as well i was going to say one thing that makes it interesting is the fact that they had those strict licensing laws that you would see perhaps uh an allegory or allegorical comparison in the states would be a place like california 
or something like that. But they still allowed semi-automatic rifles under their uh, hunting. So if you got a license under a hunting purpose, for example, they considered modern sporting rifles under that uh, license, which is uh, just a funny difference that you wouldn't see that in, in our stricter states here. So there were um, semi-automatic carbines owned by civilians as long as they had that license prior to this. It just wasn't covered under self-defense, as you said, which was a reform that they just enacted prior to the invasion. Yeah, you know, and that's somewhat similar to how we treat uh, sporting exceptions here in the United States, especially right. when you look at things like the the National Firearms Act, where you know I think AO, AOWs, any other weapons, which would would have to be registered and taxed under. The NFA could apply to anything that has a barrel diameter, I think, of more than half an inch, which would include uh, 12 gauge shotguns, except for right. the sporting exception. Uh, and there's a lot of things like that going on um, in our own gun laws that unless you're really digging deep into them, uh, you wouldn't even realize. I think the real the real main difference, because uh, you could get into a lot of different little uh, minor de details is how difficult it is to obtain a, a gun legally as somebody who's not, who doesn't have a criminal record or, um, sure. you know, hasn't been adjudicated mentally ill as a danger to themselves or others, you know, it's much harder in Ukraine uh, in the lead up to the war. And even, even now uh, than it is in the United States. Because uh, so, now, uh, you know, we had a piece from um, Anthony Constantini, who's uh, studied uh, over in Europe and is a PhD candidate now, and he's written on some of these uh, issues before. But he wrote a piece for us about um, about the situation in Ukraine and the change in their gun laws. And you know, it, even now with the new law, the liberalization that they just underwent, you know, you still have um, licensing in state-run classes, and you still have a national registry of guns. You still have uh, a lot of guns that are banned for civilian possession that what would be legal here in the United States, um, you know, such as. Uh, well, actually, so, some of these things are similar to our NFA, you know, short barrel rifles, uh, fully automatic weapons, uh, you know, most. But they have like different classes of, of who can own what sportsmen versus. Uh, regular civilians uh, versus outright bans. So the, the law is still pretty opaque in terms of um, comparisons to the U.S. It's just that now they've uh, made a more of a philosophical change. And and obviously, this is this law was passed as something of a statement more right. than anything because you know they're handing guns out on the street to civilians, fully automatic weapons, military right. grade uh, stuff that's from their military armories to civilians. So, you know, the, the law is not really um, what's governing things in Ukraine while they're in the middle of an invasion, obviously. So the parliament there passed this bill, liberalizing their gun laws and recognizing these rights to self-defense as more of a symbolic uh, uh, thing than, I, than anything else. And I think that's uh, sort of the important thing to get across is like their laws before this change were similar to a lot of your other European laws in at the top level. It just was much, much more difficult to legally obtain a gun there as a civilian than anywhere here in the United States, even uh, in places like California and Massachusetts, where they have comparatively strict gun laws for, for America. Right. Um, but uh, I think there was a there's a couple more to his question, right? I think he yeah uh, he asked about Zelensky specifically. Um, yeah, what, he, what did we, what did we find on that? So he he said that you know there's some people have been saying that Zelensky was um, ran on gun control or was for gun control before the invasion. What did, what did we find on that one? Because we hadn't written about it before. We looked it up. Right. Right. Yeah, we we found some reporting that uh, I guess a Ukrainian gun rights group tried to start a petition effort to get some of those gun laws that we talked about being so strict to try to liberalize them a little bit, mm -hmm. um, just last year even. Uh, yeah. And I guess he publicly voiced opposition to that effort. And I guess his rationale was that it was premature and he blamed, this article at least says that he blamed the socioeconomic conditions of Ukraine at the time. 
Um, yeah, there's, because a, there's of, an article in, uh, where was it? It's, uh, Firearms. The Firearms News. Yeah, which is a, which is a magazine, and they, they did a story last year. Uh, well, actually, it was earlier this year on it. But, but So he did actually oppose these reforms previously. Right. Yeah, that's what it looks like, at least it, it, as recently as last year, apparently he was uh, a vocal opponent to liberalization. And then obviously, you know, when you have a foreign country at your doorstep with guns and tanks, that kind of changes the status quo a little bit. So, yeah. And, and they did try to pass this exact reform that that did end up going into law right before right. the late invasion. They tried to pass that the year before and it didn't make it through. Really, a lot of the stuff reported in this piece echoes the talking points that I had seen for why that bill didn't make it through uh, the Ukrainian parliament, the I think it's called the RADA, mm -hmm. you know, last year. And so, um, you know, it's, it sounds like basically Zelensky was in line with what most of the politicians in Ukraine felt uh, in the immediate run up to this war, uh, which was that they didn't you know, well, they weren't yet ready for it. Was, it was sort of this, uh, you hear premature being s tossed around a lot when I was right. reading about this stuff, uh, when I looked into it and, uh, it's, it's just sort of like, no, they're not ready to liberalize the gun laws there yet. Um, maybe later on down the line was kind of the, the argument you had, which is obviously pretty different from what you we hear in the, in the U.S. on right. how we argue about uh, guns, but but in Europe, um, I think that's a more common uh, take on things, especially in some sure. of these Eastern European countries that didn't exist, you know, thirty years ago. Sure. Uh, and but yeah, uh, and then what, what was the? He had another one too, right? Yeah, he just basically asked, you know, how recent events kind of changed the gun culture in Ukraine, and I think. I mean, obviously, that caused for a little bit of a speculation on our part, but I think, you know, very clearly they passed the reform before the invasion to recognize self-defense. They're actively arming civilians. So civilians are getting real world firearms experience. You have to imagine it will have some effect on on the gun culture um, in the country moving forward, for sure. Yeah, I mean. One thing that's interesting, though, to note. Uh, in that is, you know, and, and certainly this was, you know, like we were just talking about there, this was a symbolic effort more than anything else. Right. You know, obviously it is a legal change in how their gun, their laws work, but uh, currently Vladimir Putin is trying to topple their entire government and wipe out all of their laws. So, uh, you know, it's more of a symbolic gesture about everyone being in the fight together and having the right to defend themselves or their property or their country. That's sort of more what they, it seems like they were trying to send uh, with this law. And so, yeah, I mean, obviously the idea that civilians shouldn't be armed uh, is uh, probably not very popular in Ukraine right now among Ukrainians uh, who are actively fighting against uh, an invasion by an oppressive uh, foreign government. So, um yeah, I think their attitude has probably changed a lot. But one thing I will note is that they've obviously been at war with uh, Russian-backed separatists for the last eight years. Right. Uh, really, since the entire inception of the, you know, the new Ukrainian government uh, after they overthrew the Putin uh, puppet that was there previously, and um, so they're, you know, they're. They, I think that their civilian population is more uh, prepared to fight in a war than most other countries because, from my understanding at least, the way that they've been fighting the war in the East against the Russian separatists is that they, they had drafts where they had um, conscripts go in and serve time for uh, like a year on the front lines and then, and then rotate out which means that you have a large population of, of veterans in Ukraine up to this point. And I think the, some of the estimates that at least Ukrainian officials and generals have given is that that, that number could be up to 400,000 men who fought in that war over the last eight years. So, you know, that they have more, obviously one of the critiques that you get is that this was sort of a, a late conversion to uh, the idea of um, an armed populace being beneficial when you're when you're fighting off a, an invasion of this sort, uh, and that might be detrimental because it doesn't give the population 
the opportunity to train with firearms before having to use them in this de desperate situation. But Ukraine is in a little bit different situation because they have a large population of, of veterans who've served time actively fighting. So that, I guess that's one, one thing I would note in terms of the Ukrainian culture of, of arms uh, that I think a lot of Americans don't know yet, right? I was going to say, that's a fair point to make. You know, there's fundamentally uh, a different relationship to gun culture, if you want to call it that, when you've actively been fighting for close to a decade or more. So I think that that is a, a good point that you bring up. Um, it might be a different conception of gun culture than maybe folks in America here think of it just based on that fact alone. Yeah, I think people underestimate how prepared the civilian population in Ukraine is for for a fight like this. Because uh, sure. I, I think they're better positioned than most people realize. But, you know, speaking of comparisons to America, uh, this next question is about Ukraine, follows along nicely from uh, Brian Jay. So thank you, Brian. Uh, he said, I'd love to hear your thoughts about all the positive social media exposure regarding Ukraine arming its own citizens. Uh, he says, with assault rifles, no less. Uh, restoring their right to keep and bear arms. And what do you think it means for the future of gun control legislation here in the USA? Um, so I, then, I, I'd be then, interested to hear... Sorry, well, I think uh, one of our other members uh, provided something of an answer to this. Uh, yeah. Dick Heller uh, of, uh, you know, Heller v. Uh, D.C. He, he, he sent in a question or maybe more of a comment. He said, uh, so why do you all need these 50 round clips is the question, right? Uh, and the answer is, see Ukraine. Uh, right. So I guess his, he's getting at sort of the heart of, of what Brian is is asking about, like, how is the fact that Ukrainian civilians being are part you know being part of this successful thus far uh, resistance campaign to the Russian invasion? How does that play here in America with our gun politics? Right, um, you know, obviously the core of a lot of um, pro-gun arguments is this idea that an armed populace can better resist. Uh, tyrannical governments or tyrannical rule right. or tyrannical invaders. Um, and now you're seeing this uh, played out in real life in front of our eyes and cable news and in our social media feeds in real time. And uh, I think that does have a real impact politically in the United States. Obviously it's sort of an ancillary concern, you know, how, how, how does right. this war <laughs> that these people are going this horrific thing, how does this affect our debate about, uh, you know, politics in the United States, but, but it's a real consideration. I mean, how, how easy is it to argue that people don't need AR-15s and 30 round magazines at all for any reason when you're seeing the need displayed, uh, you know, on your TV every night, I guess that, that would be the argument. I think that's right, especially I, I think the biggest effect from this will come at the grassroots level. I don't think it's going to affect gun control legislation or pushes for gun control legislation. Maybe at the top, you're already seeing some figures kind of hand waving this away. Stop gun. Oh, pro gun people stop using Ukraine as a example, blah, blah, blah. But I think based on the trends we're already seeing, gun control polling is going in a direction more favorable to gun rights lately. Um, you've got millions of new people who've become gun owners who maybe aren't steeped in the theories behind why the Second Amendment exists. Now, suddenly, as you said, on cable news, have a, a full view of what an armed civilian populace really looks like in practice when it comes to, you know, the worst case scenario of a tyrannical government. You have to imagine that at the grassroots, um, maybe individual level, it has a, a real effect. Yeah, I, I can't disagree with you there, although I would say you have seen an effect in some of the top level uh, perhaps uh, in one example I would give is President Biden's State of the Union address, right? He now he talked oh, about right. guns, and you you wrote a you wrote a good analysis piece about this, right? Uh, he did he did bring up all of the same policies. He's still advocating for the same policies. He hasn't changed any of his uh, goals on the policy level, right? He still wants assault weapons bans and universal background checks and repeal the Protection of Lawful Commerce and Arms Act, all that stuff, he still wants it. But right. his speech, as you noted, right, it only lasts, that section was only, what, the, a minute, you said? It was less than a minute, yeah, 50-something seconds, yeah. 
and he and he brought out one of his uh anecdotes that he likes to use one of his jokes whenever he talks about guns he has a couple different jokes that he'll use one of them is uh he you know the deer you don't need a a high capacity magazine a magazine that i think he's said in the past you don't need more than three rounds uh, yeah. because the deer uh don't have kevlar vests right and so he made he made that joke but he did not make the joke that he also likes to make which is that you can't overthrow the government you can't take on the government because the government has fighter jets, has F-16s okay. and so forth. Well, um, I mean, you know, obviously the Ukrainians don't only have small arms in their fight against Russia, but we are literally supplying them with those kinds of weapons to fight right. this war. So uh, he didn't trot that out. And I, I think that was on purpose, especially because he opened his speech talking about giving Ukrainians supplies to help them defend themselves and right. so that but the other point i would make too and this is um a more difficult point i think right now you are seeing the ukrainians have success like we mentioned earlier they're doing very well they're extremely courageous and they're doing an admirable job of fighting off an invader who has superior uh numbers and, and superior uh, armament than is much, you know, just a much larger country. But uh, so it's, you know, it's easy to, to make the argument that it's an, another example of people being able to uh, repel a, a better equipped, uh, tyrannical, um, you know, oppressor because they're armed. But if the war you know, doesn't turn out the way that we all want it to, that argument become, you know, starts to go in the opposite direction, unfortunately. That's true. And it'll be harder to make that, you know, to use Ukraine as an example. Of course, you don't need Ukraine as an example, and it's, which is one of the, you know, it's one of the hard things to talk about it as an example because it's like we don't. You've seen many times throughout history where uh, a, a smaller force of insurgents or um, revolutionaries has been able to defeat a better equipped and better armed uh, tyrannical opposition or just um, not, not even you don't need Ukraine as an example. So it's, nobody wants to see this as some example that we needed to understand this point. But obviously, right now, the way things are going, it does reinforce that point. But if things turn for the worse, it'll uh, obviously do the opposite so that that's the other that's the only other consideration i think people need to realize when they're looking at ukraine and what's happening there from from like a pro-gun uh, point of view sure i think it's a fair point definitely a fair point uh, all right but i think that kind of wraps up our our ukraine questions that we got from the the members um yep. we got a, a more than a few uh about the nra specifically too um, we got one from James Blessman here who asks, uh, could you expound on how LaPierre controls the NRA board? I think he's referring to our last podcast um, where you had Rocky Marshall on. Yeah. Um, Former board member. Yeah. And so he just he said uh, it was touched on the on the podcast, but he just would like a little more info on on how that exactly works. Yeah. Well, so Rocky came on and, and he obviously uh, gave his view of of what the board is like during his time on it as, as a sort of a dissenting member, somebody who uh, didn't want Wayne LaPierre to be in charge anymore and wanted to uh, make more reforms to address some of the concerns surrounding these allegations of uh, diverting NRA money to pay for personal expenses, things like private jets and uh, private jet trips and, and yacht trips and clothes and vacations and 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 then making you know sort of sweetheart deals with fat friends and family members that, that sort of you know i think people are well aware of the allegations that have come out at this point but he claimed essentially that the majority of the board is not um acting in the best interests of nra members but is instead uh, acting in wayne lapierre's interests and that's been a common refrain that you've heard from uh, NRA critics, you know, people inside of the 
well, really both people inside the gun rights movement, you know, Rob Pincus would be another example. Um, uh, Phil Journey, who's still on the board, is uh, also highly critical of uh, how, how things have been operating at the NRA. But also, of course, people outside of the gun rights movement, with the, the New York Attorney General being the most obvious one, she's uh, accused the NRA board of being captured by LaPierre. You've had some reporting that indicates as well uh, there have even been nefarious attempts to change the outcomes of NRA board elections. Uh, you, the Gangster Capitalism podcast, uh, season two that dealt with the NRA, accused um, LaPierre of paying people NRA, with NRA money to go and lobby for certain uh, directors to be elected to the board during the annual meeting. And so, you know, I, it's we're not going to make any accusations that we can't back up with evidence on on our own here, obviously. Uh, so I can't I can't tell you if Wayne has, you know, owns owns the board or whatever. But obviously, you can look at how the board acts, and you can tell that the majority of board members are supportive of Wayne through everything. And you can hear a number of their defenses, which often boil down to um, that essentially Wayne is so valuable to the NRA that he deserves uh, a number of these. He deserves essentially special treatment. Um, and so, uh, you know, I, I think that it's reasonable, certainly, to say that the board is made up primarily of Wayne LaPierre's supporters still, and whether or not you you know, how you feel about supporting Wayne LaPierre is how you're going to feel about the board as an entity. Does that make sense? Yeah. You know, I, like you said, we don't want to go too far out on a limb here and, and, and predicting, but I, I don't have too much to add to that. But I think that's generally the, the idea is that it, it stands to reason that there are, are some folks that maybe are loyal to, to Wayne or are inclined to vote in his interest yeah, I mean, so, look, some board members get paid by the NRA. There's a whole um, disclosure that the NRA does of anyone, any board members that, that get paid more than $2,000 uh, in a year by the NRA. So somebody like Marion Hammer has a huge lucrative contract with the NRA uh, to do lobbying in Florida. Um, now, you know, she does actually do lobbying in Florida. She has a group down there. And so, you know, people can... Uh, criticize the arrangement uh, or whatever, but that, but it's not as though she doesn't actually do anything for that money. I just, just pointing out that some board members do make money from the NRA, although fewer, fewer do now than used to be the case in previous years. And um, there have been allegations that the, uh, that the board, some of these board elections uh, have been, um, influenced in ways, you know, like the, like was on the gangster capitalism podcast. And you can listen to that uh, episode if, if you were interested in more details about that saga, but effectively um, the board is for one reason or another, the vast majority of them are in favor of Wayne. He, in fact, Rocky Marshall was the first person to be put up as a candidate to run against Wayne as executive vice president just last year. And I, he only got three votes. There's 76 board members. Although another point that I think is important for people to remember too, is that there's 76 board members, which is a lot, but most of them don't show up to most of these board meetings either. And so when you have somebody like Rocky say that the board is controlled by us, like a cabal, a small group, uh, I mean, that's fairly literal because there's a couple of, committees on the board that really matter in terms of controlling how the NRA operates. There's, you know, the, the finance committee that controls the budget, the audit committee that, you know, audits the organization's spending, the ethics committee, which deals with ethics complaints against NRA staff and board members. And then there's the nominating committee, which deals with, uh, well, the board gets to nominate who gets to be on the board. Uh, and so obviously, if you control those committees, you have a lot of control over what the NRA does as an organization. And so you only need 20, 25, maybe 
board members uh, to in order to basically have control over the group, even though there's technically 76 board members. I mean, was it the the meeting they had where they um, where they uh, decided on whether or not to go into bankruptcy after the fact? I mean, Wayne took them into bankruptcy on his own, and then later on, the board had a meeting, and once they found out about it, and then they retroactively approved that decision. But you didn't have 76 board member, members at that meeting. It wasn't even right. close to that. Uh, you know, I think it was less than two thirds showed up for that. So that gives you some insight into how does how's the board operate? And then of course the board is only elected every, you know, only a third of them are up every year. And there's restrictions on who gets to vote for them. Yeah, the NRA might have 5 million members, but not all 5 million actually get to vote for most of the board members. Most of them are done on balloting, which is only sent to people who are lifetime members or have been members for five years, which eliminates millions of NRA members. And then uh, there's only one board member, the 76th position, there's only one board member that everybody could technically vote for, but you have to go to the annual meeting in order to actually cast that vote. So you only need to be a member to vote for that one position, but you have to also have gone to the NRA annual meeting, which only about 80,000 people attend, which I mean, it's a lot of people, but you get the idea. It's not 5 million. So, you know, there's a lot of internal um, bureaucracy in how the NRA is run uh, that makes sort of wiping out the whole board and installing a new board to get rid of Wayne LaPierre, if that was your goal. It's a very difficult thing to do. It's not easy. But of course, it also hasn't been done. It's not impossible necessarily. And it hasn't right. been done. So that says something about uh, maybe perhaps how uh, engaged with what's going on with Wayne NRA members are and how many of them actually disapprove of it. Cause that yeah. we don't know. It's no, we don't, we don't exactly know. I had a piece where I talked to some regular members at the great American outdoor show, but that's, you know, even that is only a couple people out of 5 million. So anyway, <laughs> I think that kind of speaks to his second part of his question where, you know, he asks, in the course of the New York lawsuit against the organization and LaPierre La is either forced to step down or he does step down and a large chunk of the board has to step down, uh, he asks who seems positioned to take the take their place, essentially. Mm. And I think that kind of speaks to just the, the convoluted process of, you know, how a replacement may be chosen. Um, there's a ton of internal bureaucracy that you pointed out, and you, it kind of depends on the members who do show up to these meetings and who do cast ballots. Um, to see who, who might be the next replacement. Um, we obviously see people that, you know, throw their hat in the ring. Often Frank Tate is one that tries to challenge uh, LaPierre for leadership. Um, so, you know, it, it, once again, it would cause for speculation on our part to say who is going to be the replacement because there's just so many unknowns in that process. Yeah. But uh, I will say that as far as like who's positioned to replace Wayne, really nobody at this point, not internally, because... Uh, like if you've ever been to an NRA event, whether it's uh, the NRA annual meeting or the Great American Outdoor Show or or Shot Show with their booth, they have giant posters of their leadership. Uh, they have in years past, and you'd have so like uh, I don't know, 2018 or something as an example. You had Wayne Lapierre, Chris Cox, who was the former head of uh, of of the Institute for Legislative Action, which is like the NRA's lobbying arm. And then you had like Oliver North on this, you know, 2019 would be a better example, but Oliver North, who was the former president of the NRA. And you had like somebody like Dana Lash, who was former spokesperson. Um, and by the end of that 2019 meeting, the only person who was still affiliated with the organization of those giant pictures that they'd had at these previous meetings was Wayne LaPierre because Chris Cox was gone. Oliver North was gone. Uh, Dana Lash was gone as part of because the, she actually worked for the contractor, uh, Ackerman McQueen, which was gone, um, you know, for their media side of things. And so, like, there really isn't some internal that a lot of people would have thought that was Chris Cox for years. He was the head of Isla for years. He was a huge role in the Trump uh, um, endorsement and in working with his campaign. And then. But he's gone. And so all these people are gone now and there just isn't really much 
of an internal uh, replacement candidate. You know, Jason Umay runs Iowa now, but he doesn't get it's very noticeable at uh, Shot Show when they well the the picture they had for uh, Isla was not a picture of Jason Umay. It was a picture of uh, Congress, the the Capitol building. Right. So you had Wayne LaPierre, and then next to that, for Isla, you had not Jason Umay, you had the Capitol building. So, right. you know, it's just symbolic, symbolic stuff that maybe gives you some insight into the the hierarchy at the NRA currently. Sure. But anyway, <laughs> enough NRA. Um, move along a little faster. I know I was talking a lot for that one, but so let me give you this one. Uh, federal gun laws and regulation. We got Eric Lancaster, uh, who uh, has a question: What do you see as the future for pistol braces and using shorter barreled uppers with AR pistols? Uh, do you think they will be banned outright, or there will be grandfather clause for the tens of millions of pistol braced AR owners? Uh, so, what? Where are we at on that pistol brace right. ban? So, yeah, the, the pistol brace ban is currently being reviewed by the ATF um, after several hundred thousand comments uh, on the matter. Um, last we spoke to the ATF, they told us it should be finalized around August of this year. Um, so stay tuned for that. In terms of grandfathering, I, get, I see what he's getting at. Um, there is sort of a grandfathering mechanism in this rule, but it's not the way that I, I suppose gun owners would traditionally think of grant, uh, grandfathering when it comes to a gun control law. Your option for grandfathering is to register your pistol-braced AR with the ATF under the National Firearms Act. Um, so you'd have to pay a $200 tax stamp, uh, register that serial number, and hopefully you live in a state that allows NFA items. Um, and that's pretty much your option for for being grandfathered with that uh, yeah. with that item. And that's only really grandfathering compared to like the bomb stock ban, right? Where they right. the ATF said that it was. Uh, it was always illegal for you to own this. And so you can't register it. Uh, so right. this time around, they're taking a slightly less uh, um, grandiose approach to it. I don't know, a slightly less overbearing right. approach where now you, okay, you can register them if you want to, or sure. you can destroy them or dismantle them or whatever. Sure. Um, so yeah, it's, it's, it's interesting. And uh, well, the, you know, so they, I think the last the ATF said was June, right? For that. I believe no, that's, that's for the August, firearms right? yeah. definition. Yeah, August is for the pistol brace rule. Right. It was last we heard, at least. Yeah, but then there was a New York Times piece um, where they apparently some the New York Times claimed that uh, it should have been implemented by now. I don't. That's not really based on anything I, I can understand. But anyway, they they said that the administration was trying to push this up to uh, a few months earlier, uh, at least. For yeah. The, for the firearms redefinition. Right. I think April is what the New York Times claimed. Yeah. Is what the, the administration wanted. For the ghost gun firearm redefinition right. one, at least. Uh, you know, it's so it's I guess it's not entirely clear. I mean, those not those dates are supposed to be based on, you know, how the federal rulemaking process works, not just right. what the administration wants them to be. So I was gonna say it's not know. political considerations typically, it's <laughs> how long right. the bureaucracy takes. So I don't know. We'll, we'll see. And then he had a follow up as well on uh, uh, national reciprocity. What do you think it would take to accomplish national reciprocity for you know concealed carry licenses, basically for essentially for every state to be forced by the federal government to recognize each other's concealed carry licenses? Right. Um, I guess short answer would be as we talked about before recording, uh, sixty votes in the Senate. Essentially, you know this this effort isn't for lack of trying. They've tried. Uh, when Republicans uh, are in power, they try almost every session to introduce a reciprocity bill. They came fairly close in 2017 when they had the House and the Senate and the presidency, obviously under Trump, um, but it was filibustered. They, they didn't have the majority to beat the 60 vote threshold. So in, in a short answer, you need um, sizable enough majorities that are willing to vote for that legislation to see that happen. Yeah, basically... It's probably not going to happen anytime soon. Right. Yeah. Um, the next most likely chance is if Republicans control everything in 2024 and they get to 60 votes in the Senate, which I don't think they've ever done in history. So uh, right. 
probably not going to happen. Now you could see some sort of a deal worked out where reciprocity is part of a, you know, a grander bargain of sure. some sort. Especially um, after Bruin, if Bruin gets ruled in a way that, you know, construes carry licensing a little more liberally, maybe there's some deal, like you said, between AGs, but you know, we've talked about mm -hmm. what those states are likely to do, even if May issue gets struck down, it's kind of hard yeah. to see them playing ball. Yeah. Then this, uh, I don't, I just don't, I mean, even, even if Bruin strikes, even the Supreme court strikes down those may, uh, issue laws, I think that the, uh, the deep blue States are going to be even harder pressed against, you know, agreeing to a national reciprocity sure. bill more than likely. Yeah. Um, but you don't need all the deep blue States. You just need 60, but you, you need the house to pass it. And then 60 votes in the Senate. And realistically, in real life, that means you're going to have to have Republican control of the House, Republican control of the Senate, and the Republican president. And you don't necessarily need to get to 60 Republicans in the Senate. I mean, I guess that's what we said earlier, but it doesn't, you could get, you could probably get a couple Democrats if you had the right makeup in the, you know, you had a more moderate Democratic senator in there. But right. I just, uh, you know, outside of some sort of major bargain package uh, it's hard to imagine that right. passing as a standalone bill uh, right. anytime soon but things can change and uh, I, I just don't know that they're going to change in the next you know two years is all we'll see I think that's right yeah we'll have to follow it though all right next one here local gun laws we got Stephen Babbitt and uh, uh, lives in Massachusetts quote uh, behind the iron curtain as he says um, I'm wondering when we will be able to purchase AR-15s uh, or, you know, North American small handguns, uh, et cetera. Uh, I know and he thinks that perhaps the Maryland assault weapons ban case would be key to this. But, um, you know, he's, he's, he's asking when, as somebody who lives in a deep blue state like Massachusetts, when are they going to be able to buy ARs or... Uh, so it's North American arms, small handguns, I should mention, uh, are like uh, Derringers, basically, like little guns. Mm -hmm. And uh, you have what, you have a couple states, right, like uh, Maryland, Massachusetts, California, where you can't you specifically can't own these because they have a handgun roster. Right. Right. Yeah. Especially Maryland and Massachusetts in particular, when we did a, just a cursory review of the roster, seemed to favor banning the really small handguns for whatever reason. Yeah. Um, so both featured on those rosters. Um, California is obviously, I've written a, a piece about California's roster is more geared towards the, the micro stamping technology that they would love to foist on the nation. Right. Um, which is theoretical technology. Theoretical. Exactly. Actually exists. Yeah. But, um, uh, but I think but he's, so yeah, what's he's, his, what, what do you think of his question? Where, where what's it going to take for somebody in Massachusetts or California or any of these other deep blue states to be able to buy an AR or some of these handguns that are on on the register or like not on the register, I guess. Right. I think he's exactly right in terms of his AR 15s. He referenced the Maryland case, um, which is being appealed to the Supreme court. Currently, they haven't decided whether they're going to take it or not, but it essentially is going to come down to if the Supreme court decides to take that case. Um, you maybe will see some movement if depending on how the court ru uh, rules in the New York gun carry case, if they set a new standard for second amendment review, you may see, currently pending gun cases get kicked back down to a lower court to be retried under the new standard. Um, but essentially, it's going to be judicial action no matter what. Same with the handgun roster. There's currently legal action um, pending on the California handgun roster. Yeah. Um, so it's going to take, you know, a court, essentially. Yeah, it'll probably take several rulings before, because like the the Maryland case or the California has an insolvency ban case too. Uh That'll that'll only affect the assault weapons bans, which is not yeah. what like the North American Arms Derringer guns are banned under. That's a totally separate law. So you'll have to uh, see a case against a handgun roster win. So you'll need multiple cases basically yeah. um, before before you can see that. Now he also uh, just so he's he makes this point. Now I can buy food, candy, light bulbs, toilet paper, magazines. In many, other, I guess, I think he means paper magazines. Uh, in many other states, oh, maybe he means ammunition magazines, I'm not sure. Uh, in many other states across our country, except for anything banned by our Massachusetts Attorney General, 
How does her authority to expand beyond Massachusetts borders? What gives her the right to infringe on what I choose to purchase, especially when 2A is supposedly, they're supposed to be a protected right. So what, what do you, so why, yeah, what, what do you think about his question there? Yeah, it's, her powers don't necessarily extend beyond the borders. Um, it's just a matter of kind of regulating what comes in through those borders. So you're free, even if he was, for example, talking about ammunition magazines, say he goes to Virginia or, you know, one of the surrounding states that has more liberal gun laws and he buys a 15 round mag or a 20 round mag that's banned under Massachusetts. Her, the Massachusetts attorney general doesn't have the power to stop that sale in New Hampshire or Vermont or whatever state. Right. It's just the fact that when he comes back into Massachusetts, you're under her jurisdiction and therefore subject to those rules. Um, so it's not that her power extends. It's just that she has domain dominion over Massachusetts law. Yeah, I think that's a, that's exactly the right point. I mean, she it wouldn't necessarily be illegal for you to uh, to, you know, to go to Massachusetts to, to buy something outside of Massachusetts. The problem happens when you try to bring it back to Massachusetts right? Um, in most cases. And then in a lot of situations, an FFL is probably not going to sell you a gun that you can't legally have in the state that you live in um, just out of uh, uh, precaution, I think, usually. Right. Now, there is there is a federal law that deals with uh, handguns, though. Uh, you can't buy a handgun across state lines without first having it shipped back to your uh, home state. For an FFL to process there, uh, if FFL is a firearms, uh, federal firearms licensee, which is a gun dealer, basically. And so, uh, you know, there, there is some state law or there is some federal law that impacts handguns specifically. But, yeah, the, the she doesn't necessarily have a, uh, like you could come to Virginia or Pennsylvania if you're from Massachusetts and you can go and shoot all the ARs you want while you're in Pennsylvania or, or Virginia, right. you just can't bring them back to Massachusetts. That's basically how these regulations work. Um, but yeah. All right. Next question. We got a business one this time. This is, so this should be interesting. And I think this actually plays into some of the stuff we've just been talking about here, but uh, Colin Valentin, he asks, uh, is there any modeling or studies on what the increase in sales would be under the various proposed, uh, various possible outcomes of the Supreme Court case. Basically, what sales increase are we looking at if SCOTUS strikes down may issue, but allows very onerous DC style training requirements to get a carry permit versus striking down may issue and more or less saying states can't impose undue burdens on carrying versus doing all that and also setting strict scrutiny as the new legal review standard for all gun control measures. So yeah. that's an interesting question. It is an interesting question. Um, I'm not aware of any quantitative like studies or modeling on what this would look like, but I think just, you know, a review of the current firearms marketplace could tell us a little bit. Um, if they suddenly you have these, you know, eight States where carrying really isn't that common, um, and suddenly it becomes, at least in theory, something that most people can do. You know, he points to the onerous regulations that they might put in the way. But in theory, at least, it's opened up to a lot more people. Mm -hmm. You know, all the current handguns right now on the marketplace that are the most popular are carry style, subcompacts, you know, your SIG P365s, you know, your new Smith & Wesson Shield Plus, Springfield Hellcat, etc. So, it, you know, it wouldn't surprise me to see those... Um, those guns go up in sales in those states if there was some sort of liberalization of carry laws. Yeah, it's an interesting question because uh, on the surface, you would think, no, it's not going to have any real impact because um, people who are going to carry a gun in New York or, or Cal people who want to carry a gun in New York or California or, or you know, some of these eight states that have may issue laws, they're probably just buying other guns already. And so you know, they're, they're uh, you know, I, I don't know, maybe they're not necessarily going to be rushing out to buy a lot of new guns. This doesn't have any impact on what kind of guns they can buy. But um, you think about it a little further, it probably will increase the market for these subcompacts like you talked about there. And those are very popular outside of these states where they're, uh, you know, rendered somewhat 
less useful by the restrictive carry laws. And sure. so if those carry laws are taken away, even if even if they go for a more restrictive style of shall carry, uh, shall issue like we have in, in D.C., which is you know something I've written a lot about as the most likely outcome uh, in reality, I think, for, for a Supreme Court case, you know, you'll, you're still going to probably see uh, a significant number of people buy new subcompact or carry style guns because yeah, there's only eight states that have these laws, but the 25% of the population lives in those eight states. These are big states. Right. And right. so that's a lot of people who might be running to their gun store to buy a new shield or a new Glock 43 or whatever it might be. Right. And so, yeah, you probably will see a, a significant impact on demand for at least that style of gun. Now, whether or not that offsets a gun that that person might have bought anyway, you know, a full size handgun they might have bought anyway or whatever, that's harder to figure out. And I don't right. think there's any, you know, forward looking analysis like that out there from sure. even from the big companies. I don't believe in even in like their earnings reports. I don't think they really talk about that too right. much. Um, not that the I've one seen. caveat, though, would be probably California, because a lot of these new popular subcompact mm. guns that everyone is is rushing to buy for carry. Uh, aren't on their roster because like we previously mentioned, the, um, the micro stamping rule for their handgun roster uh, doesn't really allow a lot of new pistols to go on. And in fact, that's right. In for several years, they haven't added a new pistol model and they keep taking models off. So those right. folks, I think, are you're going to see the ones if somehow they're allowed to carry in California are probably just going to carry guns that they already own um, for that reason. Yeah, that's a very good point. Those those roster laws uh, at least California's because I think yeah. even Massachusetts and Maryland, their rosters are much, well, the roster is much larger. The roster of guns, yeah. you handguns you can buy is much larger. Whereas California, the roster is very small and it never gets bigger because they it's have actually shrinking. stamping law. <laughs> yeah. And so, uh, so that's a very good point as far. And California is obviously the biggest state affected by this law and i think the biggest state in the country right i mean by it population is yep. isn't california mm -hmm. the biggest so so yeah i mean yeah a, a huge percentage of people who could be affected by this ruling um wouldn't have access to new style subcompact guns that are so popular right now anyway but uh but yeah good point uh and then as although the, there's one more quick thing on the end of his question there which deals with uh, what if the Supreme Court sets a new standard for review uh, of gun cases in the future? And that's where it would so that wouldn't have an immediate impact on the market, obviously, because right. it's about future cases. But long term impact, like if you're if you're someone who's invest looking for investment advice or whatever, and we're not qualified to give investment advice. But if you're looking at the market long term. Uh, now, there's so many things that factor in, especially like the politics of what's going to be happening eight, eight years now from now or whatever, that'll have a big impact on the market as well. But if the Supreme Court signals that it's going to send an, uh, set a new standard of review that's very favorable towards gun rights activists who want to see restrictive gun law struck down in the long term, yeah, that will probably mean fewer restrictions on what people can buy especially in these eight states that have uh, may issue laws currently, California, New York, New Jersey, uh, Maryland, Massachusetts. Uh, you know, there's a lot of people that live there. And if, if you get rid of their assault weapons bans and their handgun rosters, there's probably going to be a lot of uh, pent up demand that goes into buying these new guns that come on the market. But that's right. yeah. No. That's years like you said, it'll now. take time, but it's hard to see uh, a handgun roster, for example, holding up under strict scrutiny or a tech, even a text history tradition standard. Yeah. Um, so as you said, it'll take several years, but that totally would change the the firearms marketplace in those states for sure. Absolutely. Uh, you know, but but again, it's like uh, at least as investment advice, it's not it's not going to give you too much to go off of because it's right. <laughs> it's such a long term outlook yeah. type of thing. I, I don't know yeah. what you would buy to, to uh, satisfy that, that sort of uh, idea that you have about where the market's headed. But, but that's, you know, yeah, I think it, in the long run, if they, if they set a more 
restrictive standard on what states can do in terms of uh, limiting gun sales and gun purchases that would have an impact on demand uh, in a lot of these big states. But um, anyway, <laughs> next question here, last question actually, so we'll wrap this up, um, which I think we're gonna be pretty good on time. So that, that, that's good. Uh, no news update this week, but hopefully we've gotten a lot in uh, that's helpful for you guys. But uh, last question here, uh, and this is more on, on media coverage. So you have uh, Sharon Hankleaf, who asks, what is the best way to notify the media of 2A issues in a state, whether it's gun bills being proposed or to notify of events that are changing the culture and society to be more normalizing to firearms? Um, and they, she gives an example of uh, this is in Washington state. So she, one of the things she was talking about is like uh, the Washington state um, magazine ban that they're now um, putting through. I guess it just went through the legislature, right? You read about that. What's right, right. That? It's uh, still waiting for signature from Governor Inslee. He's said he's going to sign it. He just hasn't announced when, and he hasn't yet signed it. But it's all but it's all but law at this point. Okay. Um, but uh, she's complaining about state. Um, gun owners had had some some good stories recently in local press in Washington State, but uh, had a lot of poorly reported stories on this magazine ban and sure. so she you know she's wondering what's the best way to uh, pitch stories to media and to try and correct or influence their you know reporting uh on things like the magazine ban what what are some of your thoughts as uh as somebody who writes about gun policy and politics every day sure yeah um you know I'm going to defer to you for a lot on this question because you've been in media for longer than me. But there are a few things you can do. For example, you pointed a couple of newspapers that, um, you know, printed some, you called it misinformation. And if I know what she's talking about, I think I know what she's talking about where they mislabeled what the uh, magazine capacity law is. Mm. Um, she called it high capacity ammunition, I think, was one of the newspapers. Yeah, I remember that. That's right. Um, but yeah, you can uh, you, you can reach out to newspapers and they'll hopefully if they're reputable and ethical, will issue corrections on stories. Um, you can also do things like submit letters to the editor. If you want to get a different point of view on a story, you don't think a point of view captured, you know, what's going on, uh, get that published. Um, and also you should subscribe to places like the reload, where we try to write about firearms news fairly from people that know about firearms. Um, firearms are part of our everyday lives. So you can at least hopefully trust us to be a little more accurate when we, uh, report on these kind of things. Um, but if you have any other ideas. Yeah. I, no, I think those are those are really good suggestions. Certainly reaching out to media and having conversations with them in a way that's uh, as respectful as you possibly can be. I mean, these reporters are just regular people. Right. Um, and, and so the, if you start screaming about at them, they're probably more likely to just ignore whatever you're trying to sell them. Um, <laughs> even And I understand how frustrating it can be when somebody is reporting on things that and making all kinds of mistakes and and acting in what appears to be bad faith right that it's easy to get upset and yell at somebody over that but you're gonna have a better time usually if you're more respectful and try to stick to uh, explaining whatever they got wrong and why it was wrong uh, but beyond that um you know the, the other question about like how how do you get media coverage for something that you think is a story right like if you're having an event um and you're training new shooters or something, or you're, you're getting together a new, uh, you know, a new group of people that's getting into guns for the first time or, or starting to advocate uh, for the first time, like that, that has a different story to tell than what's been out there before, right? There's, there's all kinds of interesting groups that don't get a lot of coverage in, in the gun um, community. And, uh, you know, I think reach, making relationships with reporters being a good source is uh, always going to be uh, beneficial to reaching out to or to, to, to getting uh, more coverage of, of the things that you think deserve that coverage. Uh, so, you know, uh, if, you, if you are involved in a brand new gun rights group that's started up uh, and represent, it has some sort of different approach or different uh, constituency than other groups out there, reach out to, you know, local reporter, reach out to anyone you can think of who would 
be interested in covering that sort of thing. And then if it fits in with what they normally write about, you know, that, that's your best approach. Um, and then be available, I guess, as a source too, if you're, if you're knowledgeable, uh, be available to try and uh, put your point of view in, into a story. Um, a lot of reporters want to have uh, points of views from all different sides of an issue. Uh, if it's, if you have like a, if you're good at, at talking to, to, to media, that's, that's certainly one way you can affect that kind of change. Um, and then, yeah, I, I think Jake actually made a really good point there about, you know, obviously this is sort of self-serving on our part, but I think supporting media that does the kind of reporting you want to see, which is exactly what you're doing right now by being a member of the reload is really important. I mean, the reload is not, um, you know, some juggernaut, we don't have corporate backing or we're not funded by any of the gun groups, which is the kind of reporting I think more people would like to see. You know, we, we have our own um, background and uh, ideas, but uh, in our own editorial positions on things, but we're not uh, funded by anyone and we're not, um, we're not anyone's mouthpiece basically. <laughs> right. And so the more you can find publications like that that focus on the things you want reported on uh you know the more uh, you should support them by either sharing the articles or or uh you know supporting them financially and so that that's what everyone who's asked these questions is doing for the reload the reload would not exist at all uh without our members support and so um you know that that's a big thing is like supporting good journalism that you the journalism that you like and and giving tips sending in tips we you know we're two guys uh we don't have uh ears everywhere so you know right. send us tips too would be but but you can do that with local media too or or major media outlets as well i don't you know we're not bothered by by anything <laughs> like that but if you have a big story uh definitely think of us first if it's if it's gun related anyway that's right um yeah th those are some of my pieces of advice i guess you know try to find their email address, try to go to events that they're covering and meet them if it's appropriate, right? Don't, don't be weird. But like if they're <laughs> if they're gonna cover a bill signing or they're gonna cover some sort of uh, range event, you know, talk, talk to them, try to introduce yourself. You gotta figure out who the writers are that would be covering uh, something gun related in, in your local community and talk to those people and be normal and and uh, uh, respectful and knowledgeable when you do it. Uh, right. I don't know. Does all that stuff make sense to you, Jake? No, it makes sense. You know, just to kind of piggyback off it a little bit. Just it's kind of easy. I know it's if you, obviously you subscribe to us, so I'm going to assume that maybe you're on the pro 2A side of things or you're, you're at least interested in guns. And it can be kind of easy to get discouraged when you see bad, shoddy reporting on gun issues and you, it's something you care about or something you're knowledgeable about. But I'll just encourage you to try not to be discouraged. And as Steve said, look for ways that you can reach out. Because a lot of times, you know, these reporters are general assignment reporters. Maybe they don't have the same background that you do and right. would be more than happy to hear your perspective on a story or your correction that you could offer. Because, you know, maybe their editor didn't know. And, you know, so anything you can oh, do yeah. to, to try to make a positive impact, you'd be surprised. And a lot of times these, these writers will be more than happy to cover your, you know, your 2A group or whatever you're doing. Um, so just don't be too discouraged with the press just because it's been, you've seen some issues in the past. Yeah. And I mean, whatever point of view you're coming from, uh, cause you know, we have, I think we have a lot of, uh, people from all, all sides of the issue that listen and follow True. our reporting, but, but yeah, I mean, obviously I'm sure most of them are, uh, pro to a, but, but you know, th these sort of, these pieces of advice, I think go to anyone. Like if you, if you're knowledgeable about a subject and you see a mistake in the, in the paper, it's not necessarily, always because the person is politically biased against, you know, whatever position they made a mistake about. Often, I think it's more, unfortunately, an issue of information, of knowledge. You get a lot of ignorance that plays into this. And so if you can help correct that, uh, a lot of them will probably be thankful if you do it in the right way, you know, as a human being to another human being. So anyway, I think that's that's all we have for this, this week's episode. And um, we will be back again next week with with another guest, uh, and I think we'll try to do these Q and A's more frequently. If you guys like them, uh, let us know. If you have another idea for how we can uh, do Q and A's with members, you know, we're looking into all sorts of stuff. We're still new; it hasn't even been a year yet. 
for the reload. And, uh, you know, we're probably going to try events and, um, you know, maybe range days, things like that, uh, get togethers, um, for members, uh, and, you know, there's, there's all kinds of stuff we want to do to try and inc increase that feeling of community among our members. And, um, <clears throat> so let us know some of the, some things you're, you're looking for. If you can, uh, just respond to your Sunday newsletter, leave it in the comments on YouTube or on the, the reload website. We're always reading whatever you guys have to say, and we're always interested in it. So, and if you have the chance, please leave a, a like and a review, uh, on your podcasting app that you use for the show or on YouTube where we broadcast this as well. Um, if you want to support what we're doing, like we talked about earlier, you can buy a membership over at thereload.com. You know, we have monthly memberships, yearly memberships where you get a, a bit of a discount. And uh, we also have lifetime memberships for those who want to really up the support and try to help us grow and do more than what we're currently able to do. Uh, you know, you can head over to thereload.com today and check that out. But until next time, we will see you guys later.